I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking. This is Encounter 708. We're going to hell for this. So, there's this old Peanuts cartoon that I can't entirely recall. But the punchline is Linus, I think, remarking that you should never discuss politics, religion, or flying saucers. As if those were really three different things. Well, they are. Honestly, they are. Anyone who tells you that those are all the same thing and it's all just one big thing, man, is probably trying to sell you a saucer book. Politics, religion, and flying saucers are different fields, but they sometimes overlap. And in this episode, we're going to be looking at some of the overlap between religion and flying saucers with a special emphasis on a very strange little book delightfully called Round Trip to Hell in a Flying Saucer. Let's begin. From almost the very beginning, the flying saucer mystery has had some kind of religious focus. In a broad sense, there were questions in the press and saucer materials in the late 40s and 50s about what the theological implications of potential intelligent life on other planets might be. There were other questions of what religious beliefs, if any, extraterrestrials might have. Things got clearer, or less clear, your mileage may vary, when the contactees came along. In many, if not most cases, contactees were able to describe the religious beliefs and practices of their particular aliens. In again, many, if not most cases, these religious beliefs were akin to about the most generic, vaguely Judeo-Christian thing you can imagine, with a little bit of Eastern philosophy thrown in. These were religions that were primarily, if not entirely, moral codes rather than being salvific in nature. That is to say that the emphasis is on a system of rules for the sake of a harmonious earthly society instead of necessarily a metaphysical structure to determine the disposition of one's eternal soul. Instead, any salvation that the space brothers and sisters were offering was literal physical salvation from our own greed and warlike behavior that their rules about how to live peacefully would you know, help us with. Now, there were some indications of what happens to the soul. There was a lot of discussion of reincarnation, including, you'll remember, the supposed reincarnation of George Adamski. Contactee Howard Menger also claimed to be a reincarnated space brother, and he's getting an episode soon. He's, uh, he's quite a guy. Let's look first at Cecil Michael's book, Round Trip to Hell in a Flying Saucer. It's a catchy title, and it was also part of a title of a 2009 scholarly article by F. Carson Mencken, Christopher D. Bader, and Yi Jung Kim, entitled Round Trip to Hell in a Flying Saucer, The Relationship Between Conventional Christian and Paranormal Beliefs in the United States. It appeared in the journal Sociology of Religion, and it had this to say about Cecil's book, or rather, Michael's book. I don't like it when people have two first names. That messes me up. Cecil Michael's book. Quote, Curiously, many contactee stories also included Christian themes and elements. Cecil Michael, in 1971, claimed that two spacemen took him on a tour of hell contained deep within the earth in round trip to hell in a flying saucer. 
end quote. And there's a footnote, quote, Michael's book appears to be spoofing the contactees of his day. However, even though the back cover clearly states the book to be a work of fiction, he is sometimes counted among the ranks of genuine contactees by believers, end quote. Now, I don't want to sound all high and mighty. I don't want to sound any more high and mighty than I usually do. But there's a lot factually wrong with those statements. And despite swiping the title of their own article from the book, you've just heard the absolute extent of their coverage of it. So, first of all, the book was not published in 1971, but originally in 1955. There was a 1971 edition published in New Zealand, as well as a currently in-print edition from Timothy Green Beckley, which is the Cecil Michael book bundled with several other essays of varying interest. How do I know there were multiple editions? I used the internet. I'm pretty sure this was available to Mencken, Bader, and Kim in 2009. Now, was the book a spoof? I used the newest edition, so I don't know what was on the back cover of that 1971 version from Kiwiland, but in their new and excellent coffee table book of contactees, A is for Adamski, Adam Goatrightly and Greg Bishop make no mention of the book being thought of as a spoof at the time. Finally, the book makes clear, at least this is the way I read it, that hell was a planet, not a location deep inside the earth. Folks, I'm beginning to think that Mencken, Bader, and Kim each thought one of the other guys was going to actually read the book, and none of them actually did, and they sort of threw some stuff in there that made it sound like they read it. In the end, it doesn't really matter, because the actual ideas behind the contact e-books they mention, including this one, have no bearing on their study, which was centered on a Baylor University survey. You know, instead of trying to explain what they were doing, here is the abstract of their article. In this paper, we examine the relationship between conventional Christian and paranormal beliefs. Conventional Christian beliefs are those such as belief in heaven, hell, and the existence of God. Paranormal beliefs include belief in UFOs, astrology, haunting, communication with the dead, and Bigfoot. We test three hypotheses of deviance, marginalization, small step, and compatibility about the relationship between these two belief types with factor analysis and regression analysis. The data we use are from the Baylor Religion Survey, a national random sample collected by the Gallup Organization in fall 2005. The factor analysis results show that there are two well-defined spheres of supernatural beliefs, one conventional Christian and one paranormal. We find a net positive relationship between these two belief clusters. However, a test of the compatibility hypothesis shows that church attendance and religious tradition moderate the effects of conventional Christian beliefs on paranormal beliefs. We conclude with a discussion of the implications for theory and research. I'm not going to belabor this, and I emphasize that I'm not a sociologist, but their definitions of both Christian beliefs and paranormal beliefs that they present here in this abstract are shallow to the point of uselessness. Anyway, who cares? I care, a little. Uh, this article is a demonstration of the ongoing interest in the paranormal by scholars from a variety of fields. There are more interesting studies, however, and I'll have some suggestions for further reading in the show notes. Just to close off this avenue before we head into the actual pamphlet, I will say that it pays to be very careful when reading scholarly interpretations of, of UFO, paranormal, or even religious events or beliefs. These are slippery things that often end up being misrepresented or misunderstood as the scholar in question tries to find ways to make various narratives, narratives that are often confusing and sometimes contradictory, fit into their own viewpoint. 
It's a tough subject to work with, and I think fields such as history, literature, and religious studies have an easier time with it than more quantitative fields such as sociology. So, Cecil Michael. We really don't know a lot about him. He was one of those contactees whose contribution to the field was a 60-page pamphlet and not much else. There is, however, his singularly delightful biography as published in the book. Adventure is no novelty to Cecil Michael of Bakersfield, California, whose entire life has been spent, both on the job and during leisure time, in exciting pursuits. Born in Webb City, Missouri on May 16, 1909, Mr. Michael began to contribute to the support of his family at the age of 12 when he got his first job as a lead miner. At 15, he moved to greener pastures in the new field of automotive repair. Mr. Michael worked as a mechanic until World War II when he transferred his attention and his talents to defense work for the United States Maritime Commission. His duty done, he returned to the automotive repair business after the war. At present, he owns his own auto repair shop. In his spare time, Mr. Michael follows the stimulating will-o'-the-wisp of prospecting for gold. His search takes him from almost inaccessible mountain streams in California to the burning deserts where, he hopes, he may make a lucky strike. It may have been in the still coolness of a California evening in the mountains that the plot for Mr. Michael's exciting story was conceived all at once and, as the author puts it, served up on a silver platter. Someday, I'm going to tell someone that I follow the stimulating will-o'-the-wisp of flying saucer podcasting. That's great stuff. Now, in deference to the sociologists earlier, I need to emphasize that the final section of that bio seems to bear out that fictionalized idea that the story was delivered to him. But it's vague and weird, and that aspect is going to get more vague and weird at the end. Something that is not vague or weird is Michael's introduction, in which he basically tells us everything that is going to be happening in the book. He starts by discussing the two saucer pilots, their craft, and it just sort of takes off from there. It's the story, not the craft. That takes off later. The two pilots were, if possible, more out of this world than their ship they piloted. As my story unfolds, I will tell you and show you in pictures how these men were able to appear from thin air and become creatures with all the characteristics of happy, healthy, intelligent, natural men. I will speak about their magnificent minds and of the powerful magnetic electrical current they control. I will tell of their inserting of the magnetic plate in the human body, of the third eye coming into focus and what a powerful weapon it is and what its purpose was. I will tell and show what the supernatural looks like in action. I will show you the insides of their bodies, how they are constructed and the beautiful electrical internal display that substitutes for man's natural insides. I will tell of my trip to the planet of hell aboard a flying saucer, in what direction it is from Earth, and what the planet looks like, how different the sun is there, what the man that runs hell looks like, what the people look like that labor for this man, how they do their work, and for what purpose. I will tell of the great fire area and the burning sea. Last but not least, I will recount the story of how Christ descended upon the outer fringes of hell, what happened when the two forces of the universe came close together, my forced release from hell, the long journey back to Earth, how Earth looks from great distances of hundreds to thousands of miles and at close range, and I will build up to the climax and the end of the story. This introduction reads like a ninth grade book report. So this book, it's a booklet really, like I said, it's only about 60 pages. Reading it, reading it makes it feel a lot longer. I have the Kindle version, and if you had told me it was only 60 pages when I was reading it, I'm not sure I would have believed you. It just goes on and on and on. So, it's 1952, and Cecil is a mechanic 
and his contacts take place over a few days. It's odd. He travels on the ship, describes it and everything, but at the same time, he also explains that he's also sort of traveling psychically. He's still in his shop. I don't know. Like I said, it was odd. By whatever means, anyway, he travels in their ship, and they visit a red planet. There, his companions took him to an area that seemed to be burning. We started walking up the incline to where it stopped almost at the edge of the burning area. Flames were leaping up all over this burning sea. A hundred yards offshore and further out, the fire was burning bigger. But closer to shore, the fire was thinned down to scattered wisps of flame dancing here and there over the sea's surface. I stood at the top of the incline where it stopped just short of the narrow strip of beach at the edge of the burning sea. I looked down to the thin beach strip to my left and saw neat rows of crates and logs stacked up. The stacks extended further than the eye could see. I looked closely at the stacks of crates and logs and discovered that they were not crates and logs at all. They were stacks of coffins and rows of human bodies piled up along the beach for perhaps miles. Okay, so we've got coffins and bodies stacked like firewood on the shores of a lake of fire. There's an old bum there, too. Michael describes him this way. He wore run-over Oxfords. He wore an old, dirty rag poked up under the back of his hat to hide the back of his neck and his ears. This rag came down to his shoulders. There were more dirty rags poked up each coat sleeve to cover the tops of his hands. An old, dirty, brown piece of material was tucked under his trousers and hung down to his heels in his rear. His coattail hung down and flapped over this rag. He was about seven feet tall and of slender build. This was certainly a sight to see. The bum told him that there was a job for him on this planet if he wanted it. It was easy. All he had to do was dispose of the bodies. I was standing still there trying to grasp it all when the old bum stepped down onto the beach and walked over to see one of the casket stacks. He said, see, this is all you have to do. He put his right hand under one end of the box and raised it up a little. Then he took his left hand and slipped it under the box and picked up the box. Then with a forward heave, he slid the box out into the sea. It went about 30 feet and burst open, not from impact from the sea, but from human force, for the man inside suddenly came to life. He came out screaming, fighting, and trying to swim ashore, but the more he tried, the farther he drifted away from the shore. He was a nice-looking man, about 40 years old, with black hair, dark eyes, and white skin. He was smooth-shaven and wearing a new green suit. This was only one scene. There were many more out there, and no two were alike. I looked out over the sea. There were people all over it, screaming and pleading to get back. But the undercurrent of the sea just carried them out farther, slowly but surely, to where the flames were burning bigger and higher, all the way to a solid mass of flames that was 30 feet high. I noticed a woman about 40 feet from shore. She was perhaps 35 years old. She was very white-skinned, had black hair, and was dressed in a new sleeveless pink silk dress. She did not seem to belong there. Nevertheless, there she was. She was having the same troubles as the others. A little dancing flame played around her a minute, then it jumped up on her shoulder. She tried to submerge quickly to get away from it. When she came up, I could see that her hair was burned on the side where the flame had been, and one of her arms and shoulders was badly scorched. I noticed that the fluid from the sea on her white skin looked like a colorless, thin, oily substance. I had seen all of this I cared to see, and I started to back up. I waved my hands at the old bum, telling him that I would not have anything to do with this kind of a job. I could see by his sudden actions this turn of events made him very angry. He said to me in an angry, loud voice, Man, this is your chance to get up in the world. It's the chance of a lifetime. But I kept backing down from the incline and toward the ship, telling him I would not have anything to do with this sort of thing. 
Then he showed his face for the first time, in his anger over my refusal to help him in his tasks. He had a long, slim, wrinkled face, and a large, long, prominent, ugly nose, and dark, piercing eyes that looked very wicked. His face was caked and dirty-looking. He followed me back a very short distance in front of the ship, talking in a pleading and reassuring manner, trying to get me to come back and reconsider the whole thing, but I was determined not to do so, and I told him. We sat down a short distance in front of the ship, and he gave me the same talk about how good things would be up here. But I paid no attention to him. I looked in the ship and saw the pilots lying on their backs, taking it easy. Once in a while, they got up on their elbows to see how I was making out with the old bum. They talked for short periods and then lay down. But never once did they attempt to come out. It seemed to me as if I had to have the old bum's permission before I could leave. The pilots were not helping me at all. I could not figure out a way out as yet. So Cecil Michael is here being tempted by the devil with the promise of doing manual labor in hell, dumping bodies into the lake of fire. I'm not really seeing the appeal. I'm I'm not sure what, you know, the devil is really offering as part of this. It's difficult, though, because Cecil is getting no help from his space pilot friends, and the devil doesn't seem to want to take no for an answer. Something drastic is going to have to happen. While I was thinking, I heard the old bum's voice. He was getting more determined that I stay on. The arguments grew hotter and longer until about mid-afternoon. Then I looked up. Just over the top of the ship, there appeared a thin streamer of white light. The portion of this beam that was closest to me seemed very small, but back in the distance it funneled out, revealing a clear sky and sunshine. In the middle of the light, Christ appeared in plain view. This was a most welcome sight to see. I turned to the old bum, and pointing my hand to the light, I said, If you don't let me go, he will send for me. He raised up to see what I was pointing at in the light and then dropped his head down and said, Yes, he's always interfering. Then, breaking off his sentence with low, grumbling noises, he shut up for the time being. Well, thank God for that. Cecil leaves in the ship, but he's not feeling very companionable toward the space pilots who didn't bother giving him a hand with the devil. The book closes with Michael declaring the truth of his account. Sort of. In bringing this story to its end, I rise before God and man to swear that this story I have written began in the latter part of 1952 A.D. and ended in January 1953 A.D. It is a true account of an actual happening and of the flying saucers of today and the supreme supernatural. I have written the story just as it was shown to me by two men who urgently and persistently, against my own will, asked that I write it for the people. Perhaps men of great knowledge and wisdom who read the story can decipher the true advanced meaning of it and translate it so that all the people, all the world over, may benefit from it. Cecil Michael, Bakersfield, California, October 30, 1953, A.D. So, it's a true account of an actual happening, and he is writing it as it was shown to him. So is this an account of an experience he had, or is Cecil Michael trying, in his own weird, overwritten way, to explain that he received some kind of divine revelation? You see, the more I got into this story, the more it seemed that he wrote it as a parody or satire or spoof doesn't really seem to fit, but it doesn't really work as a straight-up contactee story either. Michael is being a little ambiguous about the way in which the story happened. In the narrative, it's clear that it happened to him, but this ending and the line at the end of his bio at the beginning make it all less clear, at least to me. 
There's also a big question mark, in my mind, about the actual theology or doctrine on display here. Devil bad and on a planet, Christ good flying through the air to save you from the devil seems to be the extent of it. There's not a lot of depth here, actually far less than most contact ebooks as far as, as metaphysical stuff. Now, the most common treatments of aliens or what have you from within Christianity in the last few decades have been from the evangelical wing of the faith. Other branches, Catholicism, mainline Protestantism, and others have looked at it, but with more of a questioning, open-ended attitude. Maybe, maybe not. Are there aliens? Well, the Bible doesn't really say. It doesn't say there's not. Eh, not something we need to spend a lot of time on. But fundamentalist Protestantism, especially beginning in the 1970s and 80s, began to look at the alien question within the context of the end times, something very big in the 70s, and the looming perceived threat of a wave of Satanism sweeping the United States. In their 1975 book, UFOs, What on Earth is Happening? The Coming Invasion, John Weldon and Zola Levitt describe things this way. The most frightening possibility of all, from the point of view of biblical prophecy, is that somebody will step out of a UFO with solutions to our world problems. A leading social psychologist feels that many people would actually welcome a humanoid being from another planet, and it might even set him up as a messiah or religious leader. If this much-advanced fellow has some ideas how to solve the evils of the planet, he would likely achieve instant popularity. It has already been suggested that an alien or superior race might affect world peace where we have failed. This superior alien, with technological knowledge beyond our grasp, could affect what we might regard as miracles. And they believe this to be ultimately tied to the end times and the end of the world, because isn't everything? Quite simply, we think the demons are preparing the coming of the Antichrist. There is a new world order coming, too, in fact, and the Christians are not at all part of the plan. This world is shortly to experience what Bible students call the Great Tribulation. After that, Jesus Christ will return to establish his millennial kingdom, in which at last God's will shall be done on earth, as it is in heaven. Here's where we think the UFOs come in. To properly set the stage for the Antichrist, who really is a supernatural personality, the world has to be made ready to think in terms of the new and the strange. This is evidenced in both Dr. Carl Jung's and Jacques Vallée's concern that the UFO phenomenon is producing specific changes in the collective psyche of mankind. The world has lost hope of some man ever coming forth out of one of the nations and solving its myriad problems. But some non-man stepping out of what is supposed to be a greatly superior civilization somewhere out in space, now that's real help. While this idea is speculative, we feel the possibility does need to be presented. Among other things, it would explain why the demons have gone to so much trouble. Also, since the UFO phenomenon is of a parapsychological nature, massive new research of UFOs would, in effect, help set up the scientific study of occultism, possibly on the worldwide basis. A third possibility is that the Antichrist will bring about a world unification through man's need to combine forces against a common enemy, in this case, hostile invaders from other worlds. Now, this didn't stop with the 70s and 80s. Aliens as demons are an ongoing concern in some circles. And if you remember us talking about Bill Cooper's idea of what the UFO phenomenon was, that is, a hoax in order to usher in a new world order, well, you can sort of see where he got some of that idea. 
This view of a terrifying demonic threat masquerading as alien abductors feeding on our souls is not even remotely universal within Christianity. As Ted Peters, who is a professor of systematic theology at Pacific Lutheran Theological Seminary, said in a 1995 essay, it's a lot more complex than that. In sum, although there are partial grounds for thinking the Christian faith is so Earth-centrist that it could be severely upset by confirmation of the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence, an assessment of the overall historical and contemporary strength of Christian theology indicates no insurmountable weakness. The Aristotelian metaphysical tradition within medieval theology and recent fulminations by fundamentalists have admittedly propounded versions of Earth-centrism that might give one pause in this regard. Despite St. Thomas's use of Aristotelian arguments against many worlds, however, Christian theologians have routinely found ways to address the issue of Jesus Christ as God incarnate and to conceive of God's creative and saving power exerted in other worlds. This applies, of course, to historic Christianity in its contemporary Roman Catholic, Evangelical Protestant, and liberal Protestant forms. Although the challenge does apply to some expressions of fundamentalism, we must note that in the giant storybook that constitutes the 2,000-year history of the Christian religion, fundamentalism makes up, at best, one tiny subchapter. It would be a mistake to take the fundamentalist fright as representative of Christianity as a whole. We'll be returning to the topic of religion and UFOs at some point in the future, looking at some other faiths' connections with the alien question. For now, I do recommend checking out the currently available edition of Round Trip to Hell in a Flying Saucer, which includes additional essays bringing in the Deros and other topics with which faithful listeners will be familiar. Next time, we rejig the numbering because I can't keep up thinking of themed series ideas. So next time, Encounter 48. Watch this, don't watch that. We're going to be taking a look at some of the better UFO-related documentaries out there, some you can safely avoid, and some that you should watch for comedic value alone. The Saucer Life, Encounter 708, was written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. You can explore the archives at saucerlife.com, and you can follow along at Saucer Life on Twitter and Instagram. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.